the Old Testament law, actually sort of finds its fulfillment in Christ, but it is still, in some ways, applicable to the Christian life. Now, a lot of people get very upset about uh, this kind of stuff, especially if they are this phrase, antinomian. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he famously says, right, we're not under law, but under grace. And these words seem pretty straightforward, don't they? We're not held to a certain standard, but we're rather given grace, we're given forgiveness. And all of God's people say a resounding amen, don't we? Praise God that we are under grace. We are not under law. This is good, but hang on a minute. If God gives us grace and he doesn't hold us to any sort of standard, then why do we bother to mean what's right? Hmm? Why not seriously undermine people's obedience to God when you take away the consequences for sin? If all you have to do is believe in Jesus and everything is hunky-dory and we can go skipping down the lane and do whatever we want, indulge in whatever pleasures, as long as we're believing in Christ, we're good to go, right? We're not under law, we are under grace. Uh, If you have ever tried to call out a sin in a Christian, you may be met with the retort, you know, chill out, man, I'm under law, I'm not under grace. You know, that's something that maybe a Christian might try on a police officer getting pulled over by the side of the road. Uh, You might have an atheist drilling you on the Old Testament law, and the Christian might be like, oh, hang on, man, that's the Old Testament. We're under grace now. None of that stuff, you know, basically matters. Well, not only is this pretty dodgy Bible interpretation, but it is spiritually destructive Bible interpretation. This is formally known as the heresy of antinomianism. Now, you may never heard of the word antinomian, and I'm going to introduce you to that word today. Uh, Anti meaning against, and nomos, the Greek word meaning law. It is someone who is against the law. It's any view which rejects laws or legal structures and argues against moral, religious, or social norms. Now, when I say heresy, I'm not trying to be shocking or throw out words, and we're not expecting the Spanish Inquisition to bust down the doors and come in here and be like, did someone say heresy? Ready with, like, you know, uh, to burn someone at the stake. It's not a meaningless word. When I say it, I say it very specifically. Because heresy is something that will deprive people of salvation if they believe in it. And antinomianism is a heresy. And if you believe it, you are not in the kingdom of God. So it's kind of important, isn't it? It's not just like something that we can be like, ah, those antinomians. It, it seeps in all the time. This phrase, under grace, not law, might sound like an easy get-out-of-jail-free card. But I want to invite you throughout this service to learn to love the law of God like Jesus does. I want to invite you to learn to love the Old Testament like Jesus does. And when you learn the true meaning of being under grace, the law is going to take such a foundational part of your life in a way that it could never have done before. So we're going to get into it. The passage that I want to draw your attention to is Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 14. So please uh, read along with me. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God, and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for Himself a people 
for his own possession, who was zealous for good works. I just want to take a section, a, a little section of my sermon here to just kind of nerd out over this passage and just admire the literary genius of the Apostle Paul. Uh, in Titus 2, we have this beautiful Greek language. Uh, it describes the work of the gospel in the world. And uh, I want to start with my first point of my sermon, is that the grace of God appears. We see that, that the grace of God appears. It's like this light bulb going off, this wildfire blazing through the bush. The word for uh, appears here is epiphane. It's the same word we get epiphany from. You may know what the word epiphany means. It's this powerful word. It's this earth-shattering word. It's when the light bulb goes off and you go, aha, I get it now. I understand it. The grace of God has appeared and it's appeared through Christ. When people thought of God, they did not think of grace, first and foremost. They ought to have, but they didn't. When they thought of God, they thought of His wrath. They thought of His justice, His perfection, His holiness, His righteousness. That's kind of scary. Because we are not holy and righteous and perfect and what would a good, holy, righteous God do to someone like us? And so it comes, is this huge apparition, this epiphany, when we realize that God gives grace to the undeserved. And it wasn't just radical then, it's still radical now. It was scandalous then, and it's still scandalous now. This grace wasn't just giving salvation to an elite few who have somehow achieved moral perfection, achieved nirvana or enlightenment or whatever you want to say to it, but it was being given to all people from all classes, all walks of life, both genders, every tribe, men and women, adults and children were being incorporated into God's kingdom as a sheer act of grace. And all those religious elite who spend all their time saying all their penances, doing all their rituals, are getting quite triggered, to be honest, when they see little children entering into the kingdom of God. And they see that prostitute entering the kingdom of God. And they see the tax collector entering the kingdom of God. And it's all by grace. You see, Paul in this passage, he expects grace to do something, doesn't he? This grace that has appeared, this grace that has come and done something, it actually transforms people and changes them in a way that humans have never been able to replicate or do. And he says something that most people think would be a non-sequitur, it doesn't logically follow. God is just dishing out forgiveness left, right and centre to anyone who believes in him. Why would anyone bother? There's no condemnation, no punishment. What incentive is there to obey? I remember trying to share the gospel with my dad, and I said the gospel pretty much straight up, and he said, well, can't I just go and live my life and do whatever I want as long as I believe in Jesus? And I was a pretty, I was a baby Christian, and I remember just being like, uh, I, maybe, I, I don't know. Like, I honestly, at the time, I just didn't know. And it was like a bit of a flop in sharing the gospel with my dad, because for him, it kind of just feels like, <laughs> wouldn't everyone just take advantage of God if that's what the gospel is? I mean, what about you? Have you ever had someone take advantage of you? Have you ever shown grace to someone who took it for granted? Have you ever forgiven someone who treats you like dirt? And at the end of the day, they're really not even sorry for what they did. Now, no one has ever been taken more advantage of than my dad's wallet. That thing has taken a battering over my, my life. My brothers and I know the secret. You don't merely ask for money, you ask to borrow money, right? That word borrow is a key thing in order to get that money out of his wallet and into your wallet. 
Of course, my dad was never going to see a cent of that $50 note again. And as uh, time goes on, my dad sort of caught on to the fact that we weren't going to give him that borrowed money back. So you'd add a sob story to it as well to kind of like nudge him in the right direction. It's like, oh, dad, I just need this $20. I can get through the week. I've got all the fuel I need. I just need that $20, right? And he's more likely to give it to me. I'll say something like, oh, I'm just getting paid on Thursday. I'll give it back to you straight away. And then I'll make it really hard for him to chase all that money up. In the same way, many people, they ask God for forgiveness and grace for a sin that they know they are intending on committing pretty soon, maybe the next day, maybe a couple of hours from now. As long as they kind of put the slate clean, they can do something else that's kind of dirty and bad, and then they can get the slate clean again. That's, that's how people think about God's grace. They feel almost entitled to it. And this view is actually held by Christians around them. Some Christians do believe that you can do that to God and that you will be forgiven. This view is called hyper-grace, or as I said before, antinomianism. As long as you make a commitment to Christ, it does not matter what you do. And all of us Christians here, we can't, oh, that doesn't sit well with me at all. But a lot of Christians don't know how to argue with that. I mean, you're like, technically, yeah, like, Jesus does forgive you, and you can't earn your unrighteousness, and all your righteous deeds are as filthy rags, and, well, we're in a bit of a predicament now, aren't we? But just have a listen. This is not what Paul says grace accomplishes here in our text, is it? He says, my second point, that the grace of God in the gospel trains us. Trains us. The grace of God is more like a personal trainer than your dad's wallet. God's grace pushes us. It transforms us. It causes us to grow in ways that we never could without it. I used to have a personal trainer back when I lived in Canberra, back in the ancient days for me. And uh, I was 17 years old, and man, he pushed me hard. And I would never, ever in a million years have done anything remotely close to what this guy made me do. But because he was there, he pushed me hard. And he trained me towards a certain direction. And this word training here is this word paideia. And that word paideia is the same word you use when you're enculturating and training a child up in the way that they should go. So think about it. This grace that appears and comes to us, it trains us in the same way that a parent trains their child. That this, that this grace comes alongside, lovingly alongside a child, and it shows them how to live in a dark world. And this grace trains us in two things. The first thing it teaches us, it trains us to renounce, and it teaches us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It's twofold training. We have to renounce a certain way of living, but also embrace another kind of living. Instead of giving in to passion, we live with self-control. Instead of acting in ungodly ways, we live upright and godly lives in the present age, in the here and now. Because sometimes you may feel a bit sorry for yourself. You're like, oh man, it would have been so much easier in the 50s. Like, oh, when everyone was a Christian, everyone went to church. Oh, how much easier would it be to be a Christian? I could just get all this stuff done. And you think, oh, that would have been a good time. But God doesn't train you to live a godly, upright life in a previous age. He trains you for this present age. The age he has put you in. trains ungodly, carnal people 
to live in harmony with God in this world. And this teaching, it teaches us to be thoroughly Christian. Christian man or a woman, right out to the very edges of your life. Right all the way to your fingertips. See, the gospel is not just a message on how to get to heaven when you die. It's not just that. It changes who you are and what you do. It retrains you on how to love God, how to love your neighbor, how to interact with each other on social media. It changes your Google searches. It changes your view of mainstream media. It changes your parenting. It changes your marriages. It changes your friendships, your political opinions, your way of thinking. This message is so total that it produces an entirely different kind of person. It's a break with one way of life, and it's bringing someone into a completely new way of life. And if you don't understand that, then your gospel is too small. If your gospel is just about getting to heaven, then your gospel is not the gospel of the Apostle Paul. Because heaven is, uh, there's a lot more than just heaven in the gospel. There is transformation. And I hope and I pray that you can say a hearty amen to this. But some of us are kind of getting beaten up right now. We're feeling it. And if you want to feel better, you just got to get your antinomian friend along. Says, so don't listen to that guy. He's a legalist. Right? He's a legalist. Don't listen to him. That's a false gospel. He's establishing his worth before God based on a way of life. Don't listen. Don't pay any attention. Sometimes we've got that little devil on our shoulder that says stuff like that to us. Sometimes if you're a pastor in the limelight, you know, someone that actually has far more influence than I do, but like, let's say you've got a bit of a following, they'll actually be people who have entire dedicated YouTube channels to your teaching and calling you out for heresy. And one of the common ones you'll always see is this accusation of legalism. Everyone will always come in. This guy teaches works righteousness. This guy teaches legalism. This guy teaches you to work your way and earn your way to heaven. It's just simply not true. These antinomians reject God's requirements in any way, and this is a complete formal rejection of the law in every sense. And if you require anyone to live a certain way, then you're just a legalist. But these people forget one thing. Everyone is ruled by a law. Even if your one law you have is not following laws, that's still a law. Interestingly, you're not allowed to tell people not to sin unless you're you're saying the sin of telling people not to sin. In the modern church, you can pretty much do anything, but you better not break our rigid law against legalism. You notice that's kind of a self-defeating argument. You've got to understand, everybody has a standard for righteousness. Everybody does. Even if you're offended by my message right now, you still have a standard and I'm just falling short of it right now. It's not a question of whether we have a standard, it's which standard do you have? Christian, which standard do you have? Is it your feelings? Your emotions? That's a pretty classic one in our day and age, isn't it? I don't feel good about that, therefore it must be wrong. I'm offended by this. Can't be right, can it? If I'm offended, then it must be wrong. Our emotions are the standard. But guess what? You have now dethroned God, and you place yourself on the throne, and you've said to God, I know what's right. I know better than you. I set the standard. I choose what's right and wrong. I choose the way that I feel and all these kind of things. You know, I am God now. They they won't say that. But hey, think about it for a second. 
Is that you? Like we may claim the name of Christ when they say that we're Christians, but is that you? Because it is me more often than I want it to be. And the way I feel about something more often dictates whether it is right than whether God's word teaches it. So what is our standard? We can talk all about this theoretical standard. We can approve the standard. But it has to make its way to your fingertips. And I want to say something that you don't normally hear in a church. But it's my third point. The law is our standard of righteousness. It cannot be anything else. It cannot be. Because if it is not the law, then the whole Bible just makes no sense. Paul here is talking in Titus about the new covenant in Jesus' blood. It was spoken beforehand by the prophets. I'm going to remind you guys of a very well-known passage. Actually, two passages. That nowhere is more striking than what Jeremiah has to say. Jeremiah 31, 33. We'll get, the, get that up on here. Well, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Oh, how beautiful is that passage. But what does he put within you? Not only does he write it on your hearts, he puts it within you, and he be be your God, and you shall be his people. A very similar passage, prophet Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Have a listen to this. Profound words. I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Mm. See, God is about a work. And that work produces something. And what does that work produce in this passage right here? To walk in his statutes and to obey his rules. That's the production we are expecting from a spirit-filled believer. It's a profound work of God in the believer. It transforms them and their desires. They're new people with new hearts, new spirits, new desires, soft to the leading of God. When God says something, people who have had this happen to them listen to God. They pay attention. They're careful to obey when he directs them to do something, but not perfectly. You can't read this and think that there is no change. That God does this amazing work in someone and they're still the same. And before, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he was carrying with him the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments, commanding us to have no other gods before the Lord, to never commit adultery, to never murder or covet or bear false witness or steal. Uh, the, The wide breadth of what the law teaches us. These laws, these commandments were given to sinful, broken, dead in their transgressions, children of wrath, men and women who were without hope to ever fulfill it, if not for grace. If not for grace. To be under the law meant to be judged by this perfect, holy, righteous law. But check this out. There is absolutely nothing wrong with God's law. Where does the fault lie? With us. 
His law is perfect. His law is good. There would be widespread utopia and blessing and flourishing if we lived according to God's law. So where is that utopia? Well, the problem is not with the law, it's with us. Romans 3.23 For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is what Paul says about humanity. I mean, how can we possibly come into God's presence except by grace? Grace has to meet that gap. It has to make up for how far we fall short. Except by an amazing outpouring of His love, we are toast. We're in big trouble. It is only a gift. Let's keep reading. This famous passage, we all know Romans 3.23. But how well do we know the rest? He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Praise be to God that that verse does not end there. And uh, justify, that word means made right, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God made us right in Christ, even though we could never do it. And He redeemed us by His blood, and He saved us through sacrifice. And Jesus was this propitiation. That word propitiation, big long word, but it means turning aside wrath, appeasing someone. Jesus was the thing that appeased God. He absorbed the wrath of God in his body. Just like a soldier might throw himself on a grenade and absorb the wrath of a grenade in his body so that his comrades could go free. So also did Jesus absorb a wrath that was so monumental, so cosmic, just so total. And it's impossible to really comprehend this act of love, isn't it? It's impossible to really understand it. And it was done on our behalf for his glory. And through this sacrifice, God made it possible for us to be washed clean, for a new heart, for a new spirit. And when someone becomes a Christian, we, they are not merely converted to a different viewpoint. They're not merely a people who subscribe to a certain system of beliefs. They are people who are reborn through the Holy Spirit. And that was what the prophets were looking forward to with great anticipation. This amazing moment when God would graciously indwell his people and cause them through his spirit to keep his law. God's law is the standard that we must keep. But Jesus kept it on our behalf. He traded places with us. Now you can begin your journey as redeemed people. Notice how that changes everything. My fourth point. Grace empowers us to keep the law. Romans 6. Here's our famous passage that I quoted before, not being under law but under grace. Many people forget their uh, context to those words that we read. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Christian, you are not under law, you are under grace. Because if you are under the law, you'd be in big trouble. Without the gospel message, all your attempts at law-keeping and living in a moral way and striving after whatever righteousness you can muster in your own strength will fall so far short of the mark. Even the best among us fall short. 
we need grace. Grace is the lifeline, the support, the help. And when you realize that, every time you fall short in reaching the mark, Jesus makes up the gap. Every time, Jesus has to make up that gap through his sacrifice. He's not sacrificed again, he was sacrificed once and for all, but he paid that beforehand, knowing full well the gap he had to make. By refusing this gospel message, you are refusing the very thing that can save you. Because only the gospel can account and provide for all your faltering and tripping and stumbling and failures. And so we have no excuse for passivity. Have you ever thought something along the lines of, well, I'm sinful by nature, so no matter how hard I try, I'll never overcome this sin that I'm struggling with. I've known Christians who will sit in sin and rebellion waiting for God to do something. Waiting to be shaken up. Waiting for God to bring righteousness on a silver platter. I know Christians who struggle with that. Why can't God just take this away from me? Brother, sister, he has. I mean, for me, sometimes I won't deal with the sin until I want to deal with it. Right? We do this stuff all the time. Notice this. Paul requires you to do something in this passage. What does he require you to do? Present yourself. Not to sin, not to your passions, but to God. So stop, Christian, presenting yourself to your most base, corrupting passions, hoping that somehow you'll end up all right. Paul says here, present yourselves to God as someone brought from death to life. Right? You have to assume, if you believe in Jesus and you trust in him and you love him, that you have been brought to death to life, from death to life. And that you need to present yourself to God as someone who has had this happen to them. Not to someone who thinks it may have happened to them, but you have to assume it. You have to claim it in faith, because this is the promise that God has given to you. If you believe in Him, you are saved. If you want something to do, your first step is to present yourself to Him. Present yourself to God. It's a good way to see if anyone is really a believer. Or a wolf in sheep's clothing, whether they're a sheep or a goat, a wheat or a tear, the false believer will show a pattern of presenting themselves to unrighteousness over and over, continually, without any growth. But the true believer will show an increasing pattern of presenting themselves to God. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That word love, hopefully, is the key that's going to make this all make sense to you. My fifth point, love fulfills the law. We're going to read from Matthew 22. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And here is the most profound verse 
on the topic of Christ and all law that you could ever read. It's such a simple truth, isn't it? And when you read the Old Testament, both the law and the prophets, everything in there is an expansion of this. And this is obviously true. Because when God tells the Israelites, for instance, in Leviticus 20, that sacrificing your children to Moloch is a death sentence, well, we immediately know why. Because if you apply this to it, it makes sense. Firstly, you're not loving God because you're worshipping a false God, a wrong God. You're putting another God in God's rightful place. And secondly, you're not loving your children, are you? You want to know how I know that? You're kind of killing them to another God. This is really simple stuff, isn't it? And yet, it's amazing because God needs to say this to us. He needs to say, hang on a minute, guys. This is not loving. This is not what I made you for. God has to spell it out for us in the law. But are we uh, any better? Are we any more law-keeping? Our society is content to sacrifice our children in the millions to the God of comfort and needs with abortion, aren't we? Later in Leviticus 20, God makes a strict rule against adultery. Why? First, because it violates a solemn covenant of marriage that you made to God. And you are rejecting the God who said that. Most certainly, you're not loving your spouse who you have just betrayed in the act of adultery. In our society, that's met with a slap on the wrist. Even some pastors who commit adultery are still in the pulpit preaching. These are very clear and cut examples, aren't they? But hey, what about something more close to home? In Deuteronomy 14, God requires his people to tithe a tenth of all they produce. To fail to do this, Malachi 3 calls it robbing God. Why? It's a failure to love the God who asks for the wealth that he's given you for a tenth of it back. And it's a failure to love his kingdom and his people who depend on this provision from God. There are two ways to respond to God here. The first kind of person says, boy, look at all these strict laws. Like, I don't want to be tied down to one woman. I don't want to be tied down to one man. I don't want to have to give money to other people. I don't want to have to give money to the poor. I don't want to have to do that kind of stuff. I don't want to do it. Boy, this is hard. Then there's a second kind of person, right? That person rejoices at being instructed in righteousness and given clear ways about how to love their neighbor and how to love their God. Because sometimes we need that. We're not like everyone says, oh, love fulfills the law, so just go out and love. I'm like, great. Can someone tell me how to do that? Because I kind of have been a bit of a selfish jerk my whole life ever since I was born. And kind of the world revolved around me for ages until I kind of worked out that it didn't, but sometimes it still does. Sometimes I put myself first. Someone needs to come along and say, hey, you are not loving that person. You are not loving your God who saved you. And it's just like, thank you. (laughs) I needed that. I needed someone in that moment to instruct me in righteousness. I needed someone in that moment to show me where I was going wrong. See, one person is a natural person, and the other person's been born again, and is spiritually reborn. The Christian values all of God's word for all that it teaches. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17. Listen to this. All scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for what? For teaching, 
for reproof, for correction, and for this phrase, really important, for training in righteousness. That is the proper purpose of the law, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now this passage gives the antinomian heart palpitations. This is the kind of passage that keeps them up at night. But for Christians who love the law of God, love God's scriptures and love his word. And they love it for what it teaches us and for what it ultimately points to. And that is our God and Savior Jesus. And so we as Christians, we desire our nations to adopt just laws. In, keep, in line and in keeping with the justice we see in God's law. We pattern our families in obedience to the law of God. We desire our churches to be bastions of justice and love as the law requires, but our standard is not what we think is right or what the culture says is right, but what the rock-solid, unchanging law of God says. But Christian, never, ever, ever forget that you are not under that law. You are under grace. And that grace bridges that gap. And it makes up for all your stumbling, all your tripping, all your faltering, and gets you safely through to the other side. Next week, we're going to be looking at the three main purposes of the law. A bit more of a practical sermon next week about how it all applies in our life and in our society and indeed in our world. Let's pray. Father, we know that your law is perfect, and it makes wise the simple, and it trains wicked, vile people in righteousness. But Father, we do not want to be under it, to be judged by it, but we know that we fall short of it every day. But we praise you, Lord, that through the gospel and through your Holy Spirit indwelling believers, we have been saved and rescued and redeemed, that we can now live in obedience, in obedience born the blood of your son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would not be a church marked by antinomianism, by hostility to your perfect and holy law, but as Christians who have been conformed into the pattern of your son, Jesus, the one true lawkeeper, the one who fulfilled all things. We thank you, Lord, that you were gracious enough to meet that gap, to bring us safely home and into your kingdom. And I pray here for my brothers and sisters, who may not be uh, walking in righteousness, I pray that you would lovingly call them home, that they would repent and repent in truthfulness, and give their life once again to yearning after righteousness. And Father, I pray for the, the tares that might be here, the goats, the wolves in sheep clothing, Pray, Lord, that you would make them very uncomfortable. I pray, Lord, that you would bring them to their knees, that they would weep and mourn, and that they would come to your son, Jesus, that they would throw themselves upon his mercy, and that they would be reborn, shaped through the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.